Hello there, this is Roscoe Mathieu with Solidarity Forever. I'm just dropping a quick line here to let you know that Labor Notes, the premier information clearinghouse for union and labor activity in the United States, is hosting a workshop on race and labor tomorrow, Tuesday, January 16th, 2024, and January 23rd, 2024, both at 7.30 p.m. It's a two-parter, so you would need to go to both, and the description is, Labor Notes believes in building rank-and-file member-led unions that take militant action in order to build power to take on the boss. If you are a member of a union or organizing your workplace and the boss is using race or racism as a way to thwart your efforts, then this is the workshop for you. Again, that will be Tuesday, January 16th and Tuesday, January 23rd at 7.30. There are still spots available. And if you're interested in the intersection of race and class conflict, this is exactly what you're going to be for. Anyway, that's all I had for today. Go make some labor history of your own and on with the show. forever solidarity forever solidarity forever for the union makes us strong hello i'm roscoe Mathieu, pronouns he him stranger and welcome to solidarity forever the history of american labor episode four throwing a working man's party Last time, we left the colonial era behind, fought the American Revolution, enacted the Constitution, and even saw the beginnings of the American Industrial Revolution. I hinted at the first direct action of the new nation, the one that would make national news, but first, we need to discuss the political action. Political action, in labor terms, is working through the legal channels to change the laws. It can be some chamber of commerce or manufacturer's union handing a bill they so happen to have drafted to their friend the congressman when they tee off together on the links, a bill that just so happens to lower industry workplace standards and consumer safety standards because if Fight Club taught us anything, it's that it's cheaper to pay off the families of the deceased than implement safety standards. It can also be labor unions fighting for an increased national minimum wage, even a living wage or fighting for the existence of a legal minimum wage at all, one that their employers will actually be legally liable for if they fail to pay up. It can be, and often is, unions offering to endorse or censure some candidate or other for office, swinging all the votes and all the money that the union represents in exchange for certain laws or bylaws, or based on the candidate's history dealing with labor. This is why Joe Biden walked the picket line with the UAW in September 2023. He wanted the UAW's, and organized labor's, support for his campaign in 2024. Political action has often been frustrated, inept, ineffective, and counterproductive in the history of American labor, as we'll vividly see today. 
Only in the 20th century, and the coming of first Teddy and then Franklin Roosevelt, has labor gained much in the way of lasting wins from playing politics. The other form of action, direct action, is what I talked about back in episode 1, the history of the history of labor. It strikes, like the Polish craftsmen in 1619. That was direct action with a political goal. It's collective bargaining. That's what we're going to see here among the journeyman cordwainers that plays a starring role in Commonwealth versus Polis. It's boycotts, a powerful weapon if you can get the public on board. It's arming the union members because the bosses have called in the U.S. Army to break you up for asking for hard hats and a 10-cent wage increase, and they're coming to crack skulls. Yes, that's happened. A lot. Direct action is getting the bosses, the landlords, and the capitalists generally to knuckle under privately, without having to rely on the whims of government bylaws to get what you need. Especially since the federal government has a long, long history of siding with the bosses, and the state governments are worse. Not just in labor, but across the left, these two are seen in opposition. They're oil and water. Political versus direct action is the PLO versus Hamas in Palestine, the FLQ versus Bloc Québécois in Canada, King versus Malcolm X in the civil rights movement, liberal feminists versus radical feminists across second wave feminism. At least for labor, with our long history of innovative nonviolent resistance tactics and political inroads from the 20th century, we should aim to hold direct action and political action in a dynamic tension yin and yang. Direct action is where labor's power comes from, the ability to withhold labor, but, as we'll see in today's episode, we need government on our side, or at least willing to play impartial bystander, in order to wield that power effectively. We need direct action to play to win, and we need political action to ensure we have fair rules of the game, so we can win. Which brings me to the journeyman cordwainers and the Philadelphia decision of Polis versus Commonwealth, when the government first laid down the rules of the game. Back in 1794, the shoemakers of Philadelphia organized themselves into what they called the Federal Society of Journeyman Cordwainers. Like the heart-in-hand fire company in the same city, the journeyman cordwainers were a kind of proto-craft union, that is, a union organized around a single job, skill, or craft. Hang on to that one, it'll come up later. In every way that counts, they were the first trade union in the United States of America. Composed of cobblers and leather workers, the journeyman cordwainers came together to protect their members from the rising inequalities of the Industrial Revolution, the slashes in pay, and the insecurity of employment. The master craftsmen had opened retail shops and were even experimenting with lines of shoes and boots in set sizes. Crazy, I know. And they had the journeymen doing all the actual manufacturing of this standardized footwear, as they themselves were too busy buying and selling and hobnobbing to push needle through leather. Toward the end of the 1700s, they even started shipping wholesale sets of standard boots and shoes to distant cities of the United States and beyond, something the journeymen cordwainers were instrumental in, working hand in glove, or rather foot in boot, no, I am not ashamed, to open the American South to Philadelphia shoemakers. But what do you think happened? That's right. They wanted to lower the cordwainers' wages. There's three big reasons for this, and they affect all paymasters, bosses, and business owners, regardless of how kind or compassionate or cruel and flinty they are. First, 
They were working bulk now, which meant taking advantage of economies of scale to lower the cost of making boots. Second, as any accounting major can tell you, payroll is always the largest liability on the balance sheet and always the first place management looks to cut costs. And third, they saw standardized work as less involved, less intelligent, less skilled than the bespoke shoes that they'd made back in their day. After all, these cordwainers just needed basic leatherworking skills and the ability to follow orders. What was so hard about that? If this sounds familiar to you, it should. It's called de-skilling, and it's happening in your company right now. The Beast's main thrusts were hiring skilled, experienced tech support people, de-skilling the job with scripts, instructions, requirements, and Orwellian oversight, then turning around and telling us we weren't worth the money anymore. Which, they explained, is why half the team is getting laid off, we're offshoring the front line of tech support, and all your annual raises are frozen. Neat way to cut costs, isn't it? Back to the journeyman cordwainers. They saw what was happening and on May 1st, 1794, came together to form their Federal Society. They set out employment terms under which they would agree to work in the city of Philadelphia, the stuff that had to be part of any employment agreement from any shoemaker or shoe factory, and it included a table of expected wages. They updated this table every couple of years to keep up with rising prices the Quakers sold them bread and tools at from their own retail shops. How did they enforce these terms? After all, it wasn't 1619 anymore. They weren't the only 50 guys on the continent who knew how to do the job. They invented, at least in the New World, what's called the clothes shop, or, as Samuel Gompers would later dub it, the union shop. A union shop, or closed shop, is a workplace that has agreed to only hire union members. Depending on the workplace, this can mean either the management can only hire from the pool of pre-existing union members, or each new hire is automatically enrolled on the union rolls as soon as the first paycheck clears. Astute listeners will have noticed that a shop might be only closed for a single unit. In the case of the journeyman cordwainers, just the leather workers and cobblers, not, say, the clerks, salespeople, or the kid who sweeps the floor and empties the trash. The union shop is contrasted with the open shop, which is when the employer can hire whoever they damn well please. Somehow, this always works out to hiring only non-union applicants. You can't really blame them. We threaten their power, even when we work with them to open new markets and buy their shoes. Closed shops versus open shops, right to work, the union shop, preferential shops. This has been one of the major battlegrounds between labor and the bosses in American history. A lot of ink and a lot of blood have been spilled over it. And the journeyman cordwainers fired the first shot, here, in Philadelphia, in 1794. To ensure employer compliance, they would sometimes resort to turnouts, strikes, preventing any cobblers and leather workers from working in Philadelphia for less than the standard wages they had set. And over the next decade, it was a potent prod to encourage that employer compliance. And what did they do if someone tried to sneak in the back of their closed shop? Maybe because the boss promised him a secret bonus better than what the Federal Society wage table listed? Or first choice of piecework? Or some other perk? Friends, meet the scab. The journeyman cordwainers coined the phrase that we still use today to refer to the folks who cross picket lines and go to work despite the strikes. 
almost more than the bosses themselves, scabs are absolutely despised in the labor movement as traitors, turncoats, and lacking moral fiber. During the summer of 2023, when both Bill Maher and Drew Barrymore said they would produce their talk shows despite the ongoing actors and writers' strikes, this was the source of the vitriol. As members of those unions, they were betraying the rest of the actors and writers in their hour of need, which is what a strike is, and to some of the most hated employers in American society to boot. Jack London, as problematic a figure as he was socialist, wrote Ode to the Scab, which ends, Esau sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. Judas Iscariot sold his savior for 30 pieces of silver. Benedict Arnold sold his country for a promise of a commission in the British Army. The modern strikebreaker sells his birthright, his country, his wife, his children, and his fellow men for an unfulfilled promise from his employer, trust, or corporation. Solidarity wins. The rest, I promise you, is even more colorful than that. The thing is, scabbing doesn't even help. If you scab, the bosses have no reason to follow through on their promises. I mean, they might, for a while, but when the next downturn comes around, they're going to freeze your pay and cut your hours and remove all those expensive niceties like air conditioning from your office. And they won't trust you. After all, you've already betrayed someone once. And the union, assuming you didn't help break them, aren't going to help you. Solidarity Forever includes a very long memory for backstabbers. It isn't even the prisoner's dilemma. You're not going to get the perks they offered for selling out your friends. You're just going to get screwed. Don't scab, kids. Never cross a picket line is the most basic act of solidarity you can do. Follow it. Of course, back in the day, the journeyman cordwainers had some more... direct tactics to apply to scabs. For the first decade, it was relatively peaceful. A few fistfights with attempted scabs, a few broken kneecaps to the incorrigibles. Unacceptable now, a rounding error to the Philadelphia police's usual Friday night workload in 1800. In 1804, the cordwainers updated their wage table again. When one of the shoemakers balked, they staged their largest turnout yet, zealously community policing the ranks of the leather workers and the cobblers, until finally even the last holdout called for peace and paid out fair wages. The next year, in 1805, they submitted another wage increase for what we would now call a cost-of-living adjustment. This time, all the shoemakers rejected the raise, and that fall, the journeyman cordwainers turned out again. It looked to be another of the turnouts that had marked the past 11 years. Win some, lose some. But on November 1st, 1805, the factory owners pulled the ace from their sleeve. They dragged the journeyman cordwainers into court. Eight of the journeyman cordwainers were indicted and brought before the magistrates of Philadelphia. The Philadelphia mayoral court heard the case of Commonwealth versus Pullis after one of the defendants, a leader of the journeyman cordwainers, over the next three days. The eight, well, let's call them what they are, union members stood accused of three counts, and I'm quoting here from UMass Amherst's summary of Thomas Lloyd's shorthand notes of the trial. One, that the defendants conspired and agreed that none of them would work at the shoemaking craft except at certain specified prices higher than prices which had theretofore customarily been paid. Two, that defendants conspired and agreed that they would endeavor to prevent by threats, menaces, and other unlawful means other craftsmen from working except at said specified rates. And three, 
that defendants, having formed themselves into an association, conspired and agreed that none of them would work for any master who should employ a cordwainer who had broken any rule or bylaw of the association, and that defendants, in accordance with such agreement, refused to work at the usual rates and prices. The prosecution, speaking for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, but according to the Grand Rapids Institute for Information Democracy, paid by the shoemakers instead of the state, laid out their arguments. They argued that unionizing was, by definition, criminal. Combination was the legal term, as they sought to enrich themselves by attacking the public interest and to prevent others from working. They defined collective bargaining for wages as a price-fixing scheme, no different from collusion between merchants to all sell shoes together at inflated prices. They argued further that society, here meaning the shoemakers and factory owners, had the right to define how much each cobbler's labor was worth. And if they insisted that they define their own worth, they ought to do it on their own, not working with other laborers, and let the scabs likewise define their own personal worth in wage and contract negotiations, and not pursue violence against them simply for seeking to work for the poor, benighted factory owners when the union would not. The only evidence of violence present at the trial, again, according to the Grand Rapids Institute for Information Democracy, was a single potato hurled at a single scab, but the newspapers had a field day with these workers who were obviously transitory, irresponsible, and dangerous. The prosecution capped off by arguing that, since such was obviously the case, they were clearly the subject of judicial control. Despite strident arguments from the defense, the court found on November 3, 1805, that the defendants were guilty of conspiracy to raise their own wages. Citing Blackstone, the decision read in part, an act innocent in an individual is rendered criminal by a confederacy to effect it. In layman's terms, it's legal to negotiate a loan with your employer for wages, even if they're the only employer in town, but criminal for two or more of you to argue for all your wages at once. They chided the journeyman cord waners for the turnout, saying that some of them might have gotten raised wages if they had gone it alone, but because they'd all struck together, they were criminals. The court fined each of the defendants $8 plus court costs. It goes without saying that the strike collapsed completely at the word indictment, and that was the end of the Federal Society of Journeymen Cordwainers. Because of the principle of stare decisis, let the decision stand, Commonwealth versus Polis was valid law not just in Philadelphia, but throughout the United States for the next 30 years, until Commonwealth versus Hunt in 1842. This was the first legal decision about labor in the new nation, and they'd ruled decisively in favor of capital. It set a tone for every legal battle to come, down to our own day. The arguments of the Polis prosecutors carried on far past Hunt, that unions are somehow criminal by nature, that workers are morally obligated to be independent agents, that collective bargaining is a kind of monopoly, that even if allowed to exist, unions can only negotiate for themselves, and the company should be free to hire scabs at whatever rates they please because it's otherwise unfair to the scabs. Think of the poor scabs! I heard that one from older folks, including older union members, while organizing at the Beast. This was the legal environment when the action of our next few episodes take place. The working men's parties, the Lowell strikes, the Philadelphia general strike, Manayunk, they all happen with this pall of criminality and immorality hanging over every decision. 
The threat of courts, jails, and ruinous fines was very, very real. Which is why the respectable, and the marginally respectable, men turned to politics instead. The winter of 1827, 22 years after Polis, was cold and hard in Philadelphia. Nearly 800 people were spending it in the cells of the debtors' prisons. State jails kept for those who were too poor to pay their debts, and one anonymous Philadelphian wrote from their cell of the hardships under which the working people of this city groan. They bewailed the skyrocketing prices of food and rent, the filthy streets, the poverty and uncertainty of the working class, and the injustice of the courts. Just when the city fails us, they wrote, the courts are there to take the last degree of equal law and justice from the common man. In response came a flurry of newspaper articles, most of them written by craftsmen and tradesmen. Spurred into action, despite the risk, Philadelphia's carpenters struck for a 10-hour workday and no loss in pay. Then something funny happened. It wasn't just the carpenters anymore. The bricklayers joined them, and the painters, and the glass glaziers. Even unskilled workers joined them. They organized themselves into the Mechanics Union of Trade Associations. For the first time, it wasn't just the cordwainers, or the glassblowers, or the carpenters. It wasn't just a craft union. It was everyone in the class of workers all under one banner. Not a craft union, a trade union. The strike failed, but the mechanics union lived on. The next year, 1828, was an election year, and an important one in the history of American politics. Andrew Jackson, the man who gave his name to Jacksonian Democrats, had a very, very specific idea of American democracy, a republic of equal citizens, all of whom were white men. It was this vision that led him to ban abolitionist literature. It was this vision that led him to intervene in Worcester versus Georgia and send the Cherokee Nation on their trail of tears, justly condemned as ethnic cleansing and, by some definitions, genocide. And it was this vision that led him to advocate, for the first time, that all wage workers, the carpenters, bricklayers, painters, glaziers, have the vote. Thanks to Jackson's indefatigable campaigning, citizens who had a job description other than landowner could vote in local and national elections. As long as he was white and male, of course. Faced with this new opportunity, on April 23, 1829, the Mechanics Union organized for themselves a political party, a working man's party. Other cities followed across Pennsylvania and into eight other states, most famously New York, where the NYC working man's party was practically its own creature. They opened their meetings to all working men and promised to field candidates who live by their own labor and none other. Their meetings started by expressly warning all non-workers, such as bankers, brokers, rich men, etc., to leave. They meant it, too. New York's party nominated a printer, two machinists, two carpenters, a house painter, and a grocer, according to Dubovsky and McCartan. And remember, these guys couldn't even vote a year ago, and here they were going for the state house in Albany. But the major names behind the party were Thomas Skidmore, Robert Dale Owen, and Fanny Wright. Skidmore, a machinist, led the New York party by his charismatic appeal to coerce their aristocratic oppressors into abiding by 10-hour workdays when 12 to 15 hours, depending on the season, was the norm. 
Here in 1829, we see the beginnings of the 10 and later eight hour day. This is another battle that's going to flare up again and again all the way into the 20th century. Skidmore had some other ideas, ideas that made conservative blood run cold, best summed up by his mouthpiece, the working man's advocate. All children are entitled to equal education, all adults to equal property, all mankind to equal privileges. And that wasn't just rhetoric. He had a plan. It involved abolishing all debt and private property, doling out 160 acres to every man and unmarried woman, and abolishing inheritance so the property would be redistributed all over again. Robert Dale Owens was the son of Robert Owens, the Welsh utopian who started the planned community of New Harmony, Indiana, where young Robert Dale grew up. And he was young, 28, tall, dark, and handsome. When he talked about getting the organized church out of state business and about free public education for children, people listened. And he talked about them a lot, especially education. Like Skidmore, he had a plan. His involved taking children from their parents, housing them in national schools, making them eat the same food and wear the same clothes, and taught all the same subjects in the name of democracy. In other words, he read Plutarch's Life of Lycurgus and saw nothing about Sparta he didn't like. The rank and file weren't excited about this whole Spartiate plan of his, but they liked the sound of free education in general. Fanny Wright was easily considered the most dangerous leader in the working man's parties, and not just because of her gender. She was as attractive and as compelling as her boyfriend, Robert Dale Owens, and Walt Whitman later said, We all loved her, fell down before her. Her very appearance seemed to enthrall us. She had immigrated to the United States from Scotland, promptly took up abolitionism, and as a stopgap measure organized a community in Neshoba, Tennessee, where she purchased, manumitted, and prepared black freedmen and freed women for immigration out of the U.S. She came to the Working Man's Party as that effort had fallen apart in the face of eh, the antebellum South. She wrote of the Working Men's Movement, What distinguishes the present from every other struggle in which the human race has been engaged is that the present is, evidently, openly and acknowledgedly a war of class. It is the ridden people of the earth who are struggling to throw from their backs the booted and spurred riders whose legitimate title to starve as well as to work them to death will no longer pass current. It is a labor rising up against idleness, industry against money, justice and law against privilege. The only thing more colorful than Fanny herself were the names the newspapers called her. I won't bother repeating them here. You know what they are. Where it gets really interesting, though, is in their platform. Together, Skidmore, Owen, and Wright had a number of planks, including public education for children, mechanics lien laws allowing contractors to take back their work if they don't get paid, the end of the debtors' prisons, which had started all this, direct elections of judges, senators, mayors, and so on, the separation of church and state, fairer taxes, mostly by taxing the rich more, 10-hour workdays, from the New York Working Man's Party, and Skidmore's plan about abolishing debt and property and inheritance and giving everyone their 160 acres. All of which were just about equally radical ideas in 1829, and all of which scared conservatives almost as much as the fact Fanny Wright was speaking on them out in public. Allying urban trades to smallhold farmers, the Working Man's Party nominated their own candidates, as noted, for local elections in 1829. 
However, most of them ran dual candidates, men who ran as both Working Man's Party and Democratic Party candidates, or they just straight up endorsed the local Democrats for the office. The Democrats reciprocated by taking up the debtors' prisons and mechanics' lien issues as part of their own platform, being the most moderate and most palatable of the planks. The Working Men's Parties were the first to articulate, in pamphlets and newspapers, what we call the producer ethic. The idea that it's wage workers and farmers who raise the crops, haul the freight, and do all the work, while a parasite class of bankers, capitalists, and government functionaries reap all the benefits and sit around all day. Throughout the vast republic, read one Working Men's Party newspaper, the farmers, mechanics, and working men are assembling to impart to its laws and administration those principles of liberty and equality unfolded in the Declaration of Independence. For white men, at least. Armed with a vote, they knew they were the ones who needed to do it. To the working man's party, the government was absolutely in the pocket of the emerging capitalist class. And as we saw from Polis, it was hard to blame them. It was in the pages of the Working Man's Party that we first see the argument that when merchants and magnates form associations to fix wages and pass around blacklists, ineffectively banning union members from working, it was just good business. But when wage workers came together to bargain collectively, it was combination and conspiracy in the eyes of law. So in the name of the common man, the Working Man, they were going to come in, clean up the government, throw out all the insiders and fat cats, and represent the little guy in the halls of power. If that sounds familiar, it should. It's an appeal that works in American politics, no matter how obviously false it is. And it worked in 1829. The Democrats won by a landslide. Twenty worker Democrats took their seats in Philadelphia and in New York City. Tammany Hall, the Democratic Party machine, found itself in a minority-majority situation with the Working Man's Party delegates. In his podcast Revolutions, Mike Duncan developed a notion that he called the entropy of victory, which is to say, once a revolution wins, it immediately breaks down into the conflicting factions that agreed on little or nothing except that the old order had to go. If you're not careful, turns out it applies to as modest a victory as the Working Men's Parties enjoyed there in 1829. Over the course of 1829 and into 1830, Skidmore on the one side and Owens and Wright on the other had an incredible falling out. In December 1829, Owen and Wright spearheaded a resolution of the Working Man's Party that the party had no desire or intention of disturbing the right of property in individuals or of the public. Skidmore's radical ideas about land redistribution, the abolition of inheritance, and 10-hour workdays clashed with Owen and Wright's more moderate and conciliatory approach and focus on providing compulsory public education. And Owen was always more interested in workers' education, or what we today call agitation, anyway. So when Owen tried to step into Skidmore's shoes, the opposition minced no words that although they were going to put public education front and center, they would not support agrarianism, infidelity, or sectarian principles and would only support education that, quote, shall leave the father and the affectionate mother the enjoyment of the society of their offspring. By the 1830 midterms, they had separated completely into two separate competing working men's parties, each fielding their own working class candidates who were pointedly not dual candidates, either with each other or with the Democrats. 
Jackson's Democratic Party, meanwhile, dubbed themselves the Party of the Working Man and kept on stumping on all the popular planks of the working man's parties. Abolishing debtors' prisons, free public education, mechanics' lien laws, while remaining totally silent on things like 10-hour workdays or the separation of church and state, and actively squelching all talk of direct elections. That was actual anathema to the likes of Tammany Hall and the other democratic political machines forming across the country. Anyone who lived through the 2000 election, or 2016, knows what happens next. In 1830, the Democrats swept even harder than they had in 29, and by 1832, Tammany Hall was back, and the working men's parties were dead. Robert Dale Owens and Fanny Wright limped along under various names as workers' education societies until 1838, but they had retired entirely from politics. So, what can we learn from this little footnote to electoral history? First, solidarity forever. Factionalism kills, especially when it's backed up. And we know of at least two agents provocateur in Philadelphia and a host of Democratic newspaper articles across the country stoking the rift between Owens and Skidmore. Solidarity wins. Maintain unity and solidarity in your own organization as long and as far as you can. You can pull the knives on each other after you win, not before. That's how you win. Second, the Democrats were able to co-opt the language and the more respectable planks of the working men's party, but left behind labor's chief concerns, like the 10-hour day, when it threatened them. The working men's delegates were first junior partners to the Democrats, then just another constituency inside it, next to rural farmers and Irish Catholics. Third, political action is important. As I said at the beginning of this episode, it sets the rules of the game. But political powers are only fair-weather friends of labor and will happily strip any organization for advantage. Keep that in mind when your union talks to a city council member or considers endorsing a candidate for governor. Taken together, this whole episode has been an overview of the political realities of unionizing. The law, and more importantly, the judges, are not necessarily going to be on our side. Although FDR creating the National Labor Relations Board, and more recently Biden giving it teeth, helps a lot, but we have to play politics in order to make direct action possible, practical, and effective. Under adverse conditions, we still need to organize. Like the Mechanics Union of Trade Associations, or the Lowell Mill Girls will meet next time, but having laws or bylaws that aren't actively hostile to labor makes the job a lot easier and a hell of a lot less risky. And if you don't like it, go out and make some labor history of your own. Political action, for the moment, was foiled in the United States, which meant it's time for more direct action. Next week, as the men, and Fanny Wright, squabble in New York, the girls of Lowell and Maniunk will set down their spindles and take to the streets. Next time, we'll learn how to get regularly discharged forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the